following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Uh, let's go ahead. Happy Easter to everyone, or more appropriately, let me say, peace be with you on this, the Lord's day, where he has risen from the grave. Uh, we rejoice in this together. I want to welcome those that are visiting with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we love this opportunity to worship with others who know Christ and love him. And if you don't know Christ, we are so glad you're here to hear the truth of the gospel proclaimed. Um, I want to welcome also, of course, those that cannot be with us this morning. If you join us on live stream, uh, it is not empty words to say that we miss you. We desire that you would be here so badly. We're praying for you and upholding you by God's grace, asking that he would help you. And look forward to the day that you will be able to come back and join with us soon. Um, this morning, I want to walk through the account of the resurrection from John 20. That's going to be my goal this morning is to kind of walk through it together. But to do that, we're actually going to start somewhere else. We're going to start somewhere else and help us, uh, something that actually prepares us and kind of understands properly the resurrection, which is in Romans 10. So if you have your Bible, if you want to listen along, that's fine. I'm going to read from Romans 10 to get us started, and then we'll pray. In Romans 10, if you want to follow along, you're going to see that this helpfully understands the point of the resurrection, what it's trying to get to. So let me go ahead and read Romans 10, 9 through 17, and then we'll pray together. Romans 10, 9 through 17, this is the word of God. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we anticipate the day when you will come again. We know that you have died, that you are risen and that you will come again. Lord, as you've left us here, rightly so with your spirit empowering us and a commission, Lord, to live as those kingdom citizens that we are in Jesus, we need your power, instruction, we need your guidance, and we ask this morning that the word would be that to us, that we would be refreshed anew from the word, that you would form your people, that you would make new people your own this morning, and that, God, you would receive all honor and glory we love you and ask for your help now as we preach the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 9 just told us this, because if you confess your, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In this section of Romans 10, we learn that salvation with, uh, for, uh, you know, to those who comes to only to those who confess with their mouths and they believe with their hearts. Now, the confession with the mouth, what is that? Well, it's that Jesus is Lord, that he is king. And the belief in the heart, what is that in the heart? That God raised Christ, he actually raised Christ from the dead. 
Paul has made it abundantly clear that you must swear allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I believe that something happened. No, you have to be underneath him as the true king. And that you must believe the story of the resurrection is true. That it actually happened. That it wasn't a figment of someone's imagination or a good way to kind of bolster their idea of what a Christian ought to be like. We have to understand and believe that living in this same world was one called Jesus of Nazareth. That he walked ground like you and I do. That 2,000 years ago that he lived He lived righteously and he died, and that he rose from the grave never to die again. This is part of what it means to say the Christian confession, that we understand that Christ is who he said he was. In other words, if we are Christians, you and I should joyfully obey all the commands of God. We get that. But those commands, Christ's commands, are not like the five precepts of Buddha, or they're not like the the four goals of human life in Hinduism. No, they're not like just a bunch of ethics. Paul says, rather, that Christians must joyfully obey all of Christ's commands because they believe the truth. They believe the story that they're told about Jesus is the real story, that it's actual, that it actually happened, that Jesus being a person is a fact. It's evidence. It's truth. In other words, Christianity does not give people ethics to maintain only. In fact, it gives people a reality to be part of. And notice that I'm saying it's not just one of many sources out there. It is exclusive saying that only it is the right way to know God and to know salvation. In fact, if you do not believe the story and do not trust God and God alone, then we know that there will be judgment for those who do not trust God. Now, again, this may seem blurry at the beginning here, but Paul is saying that a person cannot be a Christian if they agree with and follow the good teachings of Jesus, but reject that he was a real person, or reject that he was born of a virgin, or reject that he rose from the grave. Now, some may claim that there is such a thing as liberal Christianity, but let me tell you, there is no such thing. What I mean by that is you cannot deny Jesus and who he was as a real person and believe that somehow what he says to do holds weight. You're not a Christian. It's not Christianity at all. It's another type of moralism that the world would preach that somehow you can have these good things without having the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Jesus of Nazareth has to be real to be the Messiah if he is going to save your soul. He can't just be an idea. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. So today, I I just have a pretty simple goal. Although it's right and good for me to stand up here and tell you that Jesus died and rose again, it's far better that an eyewitness were to tell you. Or I'll say eyewitnesses were to tell us. I want to walk through the resurrection account in the Gospel of John. So you'll turn to John 19 and 20. It's what we're going to be this morning. The goal here is the goal of John, that we might believe. If, you, uh, if you've been following along in Holy Week, or at least if you've celebrated Good Friday, uh, you can probably set the stage for yourself where we're at this morning. But if not, let me just bring us up to speed together. Jesus has been betrayed. He's been tried. He's been sentenced. And he has been executed now in the midst of this horrible crucifixion. Many of Jesus' followers have stood by watching the scene, agonizing over their rabbi's demise and destruction here at Golgotha. In the suffering or the passion of Jesus Christ, we watch scripture after scripture after scripture be fulfilled about the Messiah. 
After the most intense suffering imaginable, he eventually says, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus of Nazareth, the real person, is dead. The carpenter, the rabbi that went about teaching, he's dead. Jesus of Nazareth is not breathing any longer. It was Friday, the day of preparation, so they needed to hurry the process along so that the bodies would be able to not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. So what do they do? They, they go to Pilate and they say, hey, Pilate, we need to break their legs so it hurries up this process. And as they do so, they get permission. The Roman soldiers go and start breaking the legs of the criminals on the two sides of Jesus. But when they come to Jesus, he gets a very different treatment. Why? He doesn't get his legs broken. Well, first of all, one is to fulfill the scriptures. But in, in their they, they look at him and they realize that he's dead. He's already gone. Breaking legs does nothing for them to help them speed along. He's already dead. And so instead of breaking the legs of Jesus, they take a spear and they pierce his side to see how he will react. Is he really dead? Oh, he's dead. He's long gone. He's done. John's gospel then takes us to this idea that Joseph of Arimathea takes the body, asks for it, takes it. Nicodemus brings myrrh and aloes, these spices, and they take Jesus' body, they bind it with these spices in a linen cloth, and they lay it in a nearby tomb a tomb where no one had yet been laid and placed him inside there. John's gospel at this point, the end of chapter 19, goes silent. Nothing. We don't know what happens until we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20. John's gospel, we, we're not getting anything here, no information about anything that's happening until the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is the day we join together right now. It's at this point that we pick up the narrative in John 20. I want you to look at verse 1. I'm going to start reading. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It's no mistake the scene opens in darkness. Yes, of course, it means that it's early in the morning. That's certainly true. But it's also emblematic of the grief and confusion that all of Jesus' disciples are going through in the midst of this time as they have lost their master. Mary comes to the tomb and the first thing that she sees is the stone has been taken away from where he lay. She sees that it's gone. She doesn't seem to look in or investigate necessarily. don't have any other ideas of what's happening, but she knows this, what's going on, that she and Christ's followers have been away doing Sabbath, and she comes back, and something is very different from what she'd expected. Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, by the way, that's John, and said to him, said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, she obviously knows enough that she realized that something is wrong. Probably maybe there's some grave robbers who somehow are interested in this body, or perhaps it was someone that was keeping the grounds and trying to move bodies around for one purpose or another. Either way, she runs to tell Simon and John about this problem. They need to make this problem right. This is not acceptable. This is not a good thing. Now, she didn't get all the rest of the 12. Notice this here at this point because nothing miraculous has happened yet. Something just terrible and unacceptable has happened. Something that needs to be made right as soon as they possibly can. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John outruns Peter to the tomb. He's a bit faster than Peter, maybe he has a little bit longer legs, maybe he just has a, a better physique overall, but most likely what's going on here is that John is actually the younger, Peter's the older, and like a good younger man, he runs ahead to start working on the, the, the situation. 
And he waits for, waits for Peter to catch up and to actually bring some wisdom to the situation. But in doing so, when John gets there, like Mary Magdalene, he sees something. That's what John makes a point of here. He arrives at the tomb, pokes his head in, and sees the linen cloths, cloths that were wrapped around Jesus. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the, cloth, the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now we have a third person who is seeing something. Simon Peter, the, the more dis, you know, senior disciple, arrives, perhaps out of breath, but this doesn't stop Simon. He barges right in. He goes right into the tomb and sees the linen cloths, but then he also sees the face covering, not sitting where it is supposed to. John points out that this is kind of out of place. And if you don't realize by now, the linen cloths not having a person in them is also kind of out of place. Something, something is weird here. But not with them is the face cloth. The face cloth is somewhere else by itself. Almost like someone was finished up with it and they tidily closed the napkin, folded it, and put it over here because they were done with it. Who did this then to Jesus? Remember, the, the, these disciples, these the three, three are looking and saying, we've got to fix this situation. This is not good. They, they've, got to, they've got to do something about it. Who did this? Was he left outside in some bushes, like half naked? Jesus is like a dead animal somewhere. Who has desecrated the Lord's body? What in the world is going on? Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Now, this is new. We've seen the pattern of see, 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 but this is different. John goes in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You have Mary, right, coming in, the, the seeing the, and she sees the stone is taken away. You have John coming in and seeing the linen cloths when he pokes his head in. Then you have Peter coming, and he sees the linen cloths and the out-of-place face covering. And then John steps into the tomb and sees all that Peter saw, but his response is to believe. Do you see the progression here, this idea of seeing, seeing, seeing more and more? None of them have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus yet, but the evidence of the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes is building. But as John finally steps in, sees all the evidence around him, he starts to understand for the first time. He's starting to remember and think these things through and truly believes that this man, the teacher, Jesus, rabbi, had been raised from the dead. Now, this little note here is really helpful for us. John tells us that the disciples up to this point weren't getting it. They didn't realize or understand that the Scriptures were pointing to the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, we're not sure if that means that they didn't understand all of Scripture or if they're push, pushing, uh, looking at three specific places that we now can see are definitely about the resurrection. It could have been from Leviticus 23.11 or Psalm 16.10 or Hosea 6.2. In any case, they didn't put the pieces together. They weren't understanding this up until now because John saw and believed. The scene ends and they kind of stand dumbfounded trying to know what they're supposed to do about the situation. They hadn't seen the Christ, but at least one of them is starting to understand that he is not dead any longer. The author simply tells us that they went back to their homes. Let's pick up in verse 11, new scene. Mary, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she, stood, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw 
two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary goes ahead and visits the tomb. Not sure if it's a second visit or how she loops back, but she is overcome with grief and sorrow. She stands there outside this tomb weeping. She eventually enters, but get this, she sees a new thing. Something else to add to the different things that have been seen. This time she sees two angels in white. But this still doesn't give her the clue. They ask her about the weeping and she responds with her current problem that she doesn't know where the body, the dead body of Jesus is laying. She's not sure what to do about this and she's trying to figure this out. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I'm not sure if Jesus' resurrected body is so different that she couldn't recognize him. I'm not sure if she's so overcome with grief and emotion that she cannot conceive that Jesus would be standing there or if it's just simply the fact that she has so many tears running down her face, it's blurry and she cannot see that the man that's speaking to her is Jesus Christ. Mary sees Jesus, though. This is incredibly important. She sees Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and he speaks to her. He asks her, why are you weeping? And then this zinger, he says, whom are you seeking? The first question, he kind of lovingly rebukes her. But in the second he calls her to reflect on what kind of a Messiah she was really expecting. Wh whom are you seeking? Who do you think this person is that's the Messiah? Whom are you seeking? Mary still isn't getting it. She thinks that yeah, he must be the groundskeeper or maybe the gardener here, and she turns to, to the issues at hand. She's all business, right? She's, she's committed to making sure this gets taken care of. She says, listen, if you have put him somewhere else, please just tell me where it is, and I will take care of this body and take him away. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary hears Jesus call her name. I mean, remember this. The gardener, the gardener doesn't know her name, but the good shepherd knows her name. And when the shepherd calls, we found out this already in John, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now, the grammar in the next verse about clinging to me helps us out here. Uh, Jesus doesn't forbid her from touching him. Often we think that when we first read this. That's not what's going on here. Rather, it's more like Mary, when she realizes who's it, who it is, she falls to her knees, embraces him, probably at the feet, probably kissing his feet and saying, it's you, it's Jesus, it's Rabbi. But the one thing is for sure, she was never letting go of her Lord, the one who had now risen from the dead. He was really there, the one who had died and was now standing in front of her. Verse 17 says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, I'll admit, the grammar here is quite difficult, but let me give you probably the clearest understanding of what's going on here. Jesus is telling Mary that she does not need to hold on or cling to Jesus the way that she is right now because he has not yet fully or completely ascended to the Father. He is in the process of doing so. 
But he is telling her, I'm not ascended yet. I'm not going to leave you without telling you what's going on. So what I want you to do is go tell my brothers, go tell the disciples that I am ascending to my father and to your father. So Mary obeys. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary then is an eyewitness. She's seeing these things. She has seen the resurrected Lord Jesus, the Messiah. But one eyewitness can't hold up in court. We know this, right? We know this from the Old Testament law, but we know it from our own law in one sense here. She has seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. So what happens? What does John do? He continues on. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, this is the same day, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. On the very same day, on Easter, on Sunday, on the first day of the week, after Mary had told them all about what she had seen, that Jesus now shows up in their midst. Apparently things have changed a bit. The doors are locked and somehow Jesus is getting in here. He's able to do things that normal people cannot do somehow. And by the way, this doesn't make him a ghost or a phantom of some sort. He is more real now than he ever has been, more richly and fully human than ever. He has a resurrected body, a body of glory and incorruptibility. He joins them in this locked room so that they may see him, so that they will know that Mary is telling the truth, that she has testified to the truth, that Jesus really is Raised risen from the dead. And it's not just someone who looks like Jesus either. He shows them his hands and his side, distinguishing him from even the other two thieves on the cross. He's the only one that got pierced. He's distinguishing himself and saying, this is who I am. It's really Jesus Christ, your rabbi. Verse 20 says this, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They are seeing the risen Lord Jesus. They too now were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Jesus of Nazareth. It's in this short section, 21 through 23, where we get John's version of the Great Commission, and then we get this acted-out promise of the Holy Spirit that would come at Pentecost, and the giving of authority to his church. That's an incredibly rich little section here that causes the disciples to see Jesus is not just Casper the friendly ghost making them feel better about their existence. Jesus has come back as the risen Lord and King. He gives them a commission, says that you have all authority now to do this task, and by the way, the Holy Spirit of power will come upon you. This is not just to make them feel better about themselves. This is to make sure they understand that the Lord Jesus now reigns as the risen Christ. But John's not done. He's got more things to say to us, by the way. This is what the real issue is going on here. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. No way. Have we not all heard different people say this very thing? Show me Jesus. Show me God. I don't see him. What are you talking about? There's no evidence here. 
Uh, I, I just want to be careful, though, that we not judge Thomas too heartily, har- harshly. Um, I, if, I presume that if he were in the room when Jesus first showed up, that he also would have responded in belief. But as the story goes, he wasn't in the room. And so his unbelief, his struggle is put on display for all of us to see. And by the way, for us to learn this very, very important lesson. Thomas wanted to know that this wasn't some other person who just looked like Jesus. He wouldn't settle for some encouraging phantom. In fact, he wanted to make sure that he looked like Jesus, he had scars like Jesus, and that he even felt like Jesus. Thomas basically said, without proof, I will never believe. He's dead. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have, you, you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now up to this point, we have nothing in John's account that would show Thomas to be an unbeliever. He's not been a wicked person like Judas who's an imposter. That's not who Thomas is. If you look back at John eleven sixteen, 16, you remember that Thomas was actually the one that said these words, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, Thomas is committed. He's, he's the real deal. So it's not as though his loyalty is being questioned. It's, his tr- it's the truth and the trust of what Jesus has said, both in the Scriptures and also the witness of the other apostles. He has witnesses of the truth. The disciples have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. But Thomas is, uh, is, is, a, is a doubter a little bit here. He wants to see it for real. So Jesus mildly reprimands him because of his lack of belief in the truth that he should have known from the Scriptures and that he had these witnesses from the disciples. But my goodness, Jesus is patient and loving, kind and merciful to show himself to Thomas. He says to himself, this is I. He is patient, shows himself, and we get now one of the most important Christian confessions in the whole church. Thomas has said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus my Lord. Of course, it's a declaration that Jesus is the king, that he is his master, He is the Lord. This is who he is and that he is willing to obey him. And then Thomas confesses this with his mouth. He also has confirmed for us what John actually said at the beginning of his gospel. The true identity of Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the Son of God. This is what John has been saying from the very beginning, that the Word was God and that the Word became flesh. This is where we hold on to this understanding that Jesus is 100% man. And he is 100% God, unlike any other person that ever has been. But it's bigger than just Thomas saying these things, bigger than just good theology. As Jesus responds, we see that John uses Thomas' confession to show us what our response ought to be. Now, at first glance, it looks as though Jesus is scolding Thomas for seeing and believing, almost like, ah, you had to settle for that, with the question, have you believed because you have seen me? But I would quickly put up a counter-argument here. I believe the question mark at the end of this first statement is actually quite misleading. It's a matter of choice for the Greek translators here, just to let you know. As I'm understanding this, what what, what I mean is that this could have been a question, certainly, but it also could have been a positive statement that led to Jesus' more enduring word to his followers. We've seen this in other Beatitudes of what he said. 
For example, instead of it being a question, it could actually be something like this. You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The point is actually quite clear. It's a contrast from the Thomas and the disciples who have seen and believed to the rest of the Christian church who has not seen and yet believe. And Jesus' positive statement here is not trying to down Thomas. He's trying to show us that we are blessed because we have not seen and yet we believe. Jesus isn't necessarily scolding Thomas, but again, he's using his seeing and believing as a point of reference and contrast. Thomas and the other disciples saw and believed. If you haven't picked up so far here in this chapter, there's an unmistakable focus here that we would get that seeing and believing are connected here at this real eyewitness account, that this really happened, that people actually saw this. It's true. It's historical. Many people actually saw and experienced the meeting of the resurrected Lord Jesus. But Christ knows that he is in the process of ascending to the Father. He is not calling you and I to blind faith, but to believe historic eyewitness accounts of the resurrection without ever seeing with our own eyes. The statement is for us. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you understand what he's doing here? This is why I started in Romans 10. This is why we're here this morning. I I haven't touched Jesus. I haven't seen him. I haven't put my hands in his nail-scarred hands or in in his side. Do you understand what Romans 10 has to do with this? Listen to this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Or you can insert who they've never seen. None of us have seen him. So how are we supposed to know him? How are we supposed to believe? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What are we doing here this morning? You are hearing clearly the word of Jesus Christ. We have not seen Christ with our own eyes. But you are hearing God's revealed word proclaim that Jesus is real and that he is a risen Messiah. Therefore, he demands all loyalty and is worthy of all praise. You and I have not heard, but we do share, not in Thomas's incredible experience of sight, but in his incredible experience of faith. We share in the doubting Thomas side and also understand the trusting him as Lord. Our faith comes not by sight, but by the hearing of the word preached, the word of Christ. And this makes sense then as he ends up in verse 30 and 31. Listen to this. Now he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Will you confess with your mouth then that Jesus Christ is Lord? that he is the king, and that he is worthy of a life of joy and obedience to him as the Lord. Upon hearing the truth, will you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he walked out of that tomb with a resurrected body? It's on this day that so many years ago, Mary saw the stone rolled away, that John saw the linen cloths, that Peter saw the face covering in a different place, that Mary saw angels and the Lord Jesus and that many saw Jesus as the resurrected Lord of all creation. My Lord and my God. 
John, an eyewitness, has written these things to us so that we might believe and have life in the name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. My question then is as we close and pray, what will you do with this Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father, we approach you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. In the Holy Spirit's power, we come praying and asking for your blessing. We know as those who have not seen you and do believe, we are blessed. We are those who are happy in you. Lord, we know that in this world we will have troubles. But Lord, the hope is sure in Jesus Christ, our foundation and cornerstone. Our hope of a resurrection that we too will be risen with him. He is the first fruits, Lord, and we look forward to the day when we will know you and have a resurrected body as well. Lord, now as we continue on, as we go from this place, would we be those who confess with our mouths to others that Jesus Christ is Lord, believing that you truly did rise from the dead, and Lord, that life lived for you is a life that's worthwhile. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our own people, in those around our city, in our families, at our workplaces, Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is life for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.